Um, and it's kind of with some fear and trepidation that I'm diving into this because we're going to deal with kind of the, uh, the deep end of the theological pool tonight, um, thinking about God's providence and his sovereignty when it comes to evil. And here's why I want to talk about this tonight. By the way, where's Ryan? Pastor Ryan is um, preaching at Meadow Lake tonight. Their pastor's out of town. They asked him to come fill in, so I'm, I'm filling in for him as he's filling in elsewhere. But I, I really did feel like this is a topic I wanted to discuss this evening. Um, the last several weeks, we have been confronted with the, uh, the reality of war, as we've seen Russia invading the Ukraine, and then they've put their nuclear forces on high alert, and, you know, the NATO allies in Eastern Europe are, are getting very nervous. China's got planes, you know, constantly uh, with incursions into uh, Taiwan's airspace. Iran yesterday launched some missiles at a U.S. base in Iraq, and, like, there's just this, all of this craziness in our world, and it's been, it's almost been shocking, right, we, with, the, with this war breaking out in Ukraine, and we've, we've heard the, the comments that, man, this is the first major invasion in Europe since the end of World War II. There's been this, this relative sense of, uh, of peace and stability that is, you know, not, not perfectly, but by and large, you know, through, since, the, uh, since World War II in the, the continent of Europe. And uh, even some commentators, I, I've seen this repeatedly, been like, this is the 21st century. This kind of thing is not supposed to happen. We are past, you know, more powerful nations merely invading weaker nations. Uh, and, of course, we as Christians know that human nature did not suddenly change, you know, with the, the Berlin Wall coming down or World War II ending, that human nature is what it has always been. And so we shouldn't be surprised by this. Uh, but one of our responses as Christians has been to, and, and probably many of us have even expressed this, let's pray for the Ukraine and remind ourselves God is in control of all this. But maybe this is surprising to you. There are some Christians who have pushed back saying, you know, that's really a bad thing to say right now. There was a group on Twitter that's like, saying that God is in control is such a trite thing to say at a time like this, sort of raising the question, is he really in control? Some people will say, quit saying that God's in control because you're, God, you're making God the author of evil by saying that and you're glossing over people's suffering. Now, we can all talk about, we can discuss the wisdom of saying to someone who's in suffering, well, God's in control like that. May not, you maybe you need to just give them a hug and in the story of Job, go sit in the ash heap before you give them a theological lecture or maybe the theological lecture should not be brought out at all. But the reality that God is in control even when missiles are flying and bullets are being shot and bombs are falling, is a reality that's not just a feel-good thing that we say. You see, now, what does Job 1 have to do with this? There's a lot of places we could have gone in the Bible that talk about war uh, specifically. But really, here's why I'm going to Job. When we ask, is God in control over war? And when we sort of feel that angst, the reason why people are raising, like, well, is it, can we really say that, is because what we are really asking is this. Is God in control of horrific human suffering? Is God in control of rampant human evil? Is God in control of extensive human death? Because those are all the things that make war such a horrible thing, right? Is the suffering, the death, the violence, the enormous human toll. So when we say God is in control of the events going on in Ukraine, we are directly asserting that he has some level of control over all those things that I just mentioned. And there, there's a tension that we feel because we know God is holy and we know that God is good and we know that war is horrible and we know that war is evil, 
right? Particularly what we're seeing in the Ukraine with the, the Russians, and just naked aggression, just raw human evil of the worst type. So we're going to go to Job 1. And the reason why we're going to go to Job is this. If God is ultimately in control of Job's undeserved ordeal, then surely he is in control of wars in which all parties involved to some degree are are, unregenerate and unrighteous. Look at verse 1. By the way, I'm not going to preach this entire text. My goal tonight is very narrow. We're not going to preach every verse and, and, and do an exegesis of this passage. But we want to see this big picture view of, of God's sovereignty. Verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz, not the land of Oz, uh, the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, we know the story of Job, all the horrible things that happened to him. But verse 1 makes it very clear that what's happening to Job is not some kind of punishment because of sin. It's not because he has somehow you know, rebelled against God and God is chastening him, God is punishing him, which the rest of the book, this is important for us for the rest of the book, is Job's friends come along and say, Job, good things happen to good th- people, bad things happen to bad people, bad things are happening to you, therefore you must be a bad people. And Job's arguing back saying, I don't think I've done anything wrong. Like, I don't know what God's doing here. And and God eventually comes into the end of the story being like, Job, I don't owe you an explanation. I'm God. You need to trust me. Okay, that's the book of Job in like 30 seconds. But here's the point. A bunch of horrible things are going to happen to Job in Job 1 and Job 2. Now look at how Job responds in verse 21. Or verse 20, Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head. There's real suffering that he's responding. His kids have just died. His whole family has just been wiped out. His servants have died, his cattle, all his stuff's been stolen. Real suffering. This is, this is not like Job being like, oh, it's all great, God's in control, hooray. No, this is real pain that he's feeling. He fell down on the ground and he worshipped. So real pain that he's feeling, yet he's able to worship. And then verse 21, and he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. In other words, all this stuff is, is God's blessing, and, and, and I'm, you know, life is uncertain, The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice what he does not say. He does not say the Lord gave, and Satan has taken away. He does not say the Lord gave, but the Chaldeans have taken away. He is recognizing God's sovereignty both in the giving and in the taking, both in the the good, the blessing, and also in in, in the horrific. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And verse 22 is also very important. In all this, Job sinned not. So you say, well, Job is just kind of wrong. He, you know, he's saying God's doing something. We know God doesn't actually do this stuff. Verse 22 is, is affirming the fact that what he just said was right. Nor did he charge God foolishly. What Job is not doing is blaming God. But he is saying God is in control. So this helps us as we think about the reality of war, the reality of evil and suffering in our world. If God is in control over Job's undeserved suffering. How much more is he in control of all the other suffering in our world that that surely involves sin? So the first five verses here, um, we get this statement about his his righteousness. Uh, He has seven sons and three daughters in verse 2. He's got a bunch of sheep, uh, an enormously wealthy guy, right? He's really got it together. Um, he's a godly, godly guy. He's praying for his family. He's offering sacrifices for them. So now verse 6, that's all kind of the prologue. Verse 6 begins the story. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. 
Sons of God here is a reference to the angels. They're all coming sort of the scene in heaven. Satan's coming into, into God's presence. He's, we, the, he's the accuser of the brethren, right? He's our adversary. So when we say he's the devil, the, the one who accuses Satan, our, our adversary, the, the arch enemy of God. So here, here comes Satan into God's presence. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going, up, uh, going to and fro in the earth, from walking up and down in it, out doing what Satan does, right? Tempting people and attacking God's creation. The Lord said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Okay, so here's God's perspective of Job. This is not an overinflated sort of like the, the, in the perspective of the narrator. No, this is God's perspective. Now, this doesn't mean he's sinlessly perfect, but it does mean that Job is a righteous man. He has put his trust in God. He has been declared righteous, and he's living in obedience to God's law. Again, just underscoring the point that what Job faces is neither chastening nor punishment. It is completely undeserved suffering. Then Satan said to the Lord, or answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Hast, thou not, uh, hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. Put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Okay, here's what Satan is saying. God, Job only loves you because you give him stuff. He only loves you because you gave him a bunch of sheep. He's got a great family. He's got all this material blessing. That's why he serves you. This is not an attack so much on Job as it is an attack on God. Satan is saying, God, you are not glorious enough to merit and be worthy of Job's worship simply for your own sake. You have to bribe Job. Right? The only people who have to bribe people are people who, who don't actually earn the affection and loyalty of other people. So he's accusing God of having to bribe Job. This is a direct assault on the character and the glory and the worth of God. This is key. What is being vindicated in the book of Job is not so much Job as it is God. Is God worthwhile? Is God worthy of our love and our loyalty even if we lose everything? Right? Is the lamb who was slain worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power even if he never gave us anything. And the answer, of course, is yes, right? God is worthy for his own sake, for his own beauty, his own glory, not because of any gift that he gives. That's, that's all extra. And God knows Job's heart. So verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Job went forth from the presence of the Lord. So God's like, all right, Satan, you can go ahead and take everything Job has, and he will still be loyal to me because he loves me, because he knows my glory, my majesty, my worth. So we now get the sense that everything else that happens to Job is a result of Satan going out and making it happen. But that's certainly what we are supposed to conclude from this. Now, coming back to sort of the evil in our world, we would not be wrong to say that, okay, what we are seeing in our world with the Ukraine and Russia attacking them to say, you know, Satan is behind that. That's not God, that's, that's, that's Satan doing that. And some people would say, God's, his hands are clean, it's all Satan. Yet, the end of the chapter, we see that God is the one who's ultimately in control, but that doesn't mean that Satan doesn't have a role to play. Sometimes we act as if either it's Satan or it's God, one or the other, like we can sort of, you know, t- take God out of it and just say it's, it's, it's all Satan. Well, in this, this passage that gives us, more than any other passage, insight into the inner workings of how Satan does his thing and how God works in that and through that, we actually see that God is still in control. So that's not going to work. Another illustration here. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. 
says that Satan stirred up David to number the people. Okay, Satan wants to get David in trouble, so he stirs David up to number the people. There's this punishment. You know what 2 Samuel 24 verse 1 says about the exact same event? It says that the Lord stirred up David to number the people. What do we do with that? Where one passage says, it's Satan who's stirring up David because he wants to get David to fall. The other is saying that the Lord is doing it. Like, how do we, how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile this, this chapter where it's very clear that Satan is attacking Job, and yet Job says the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away? All right, that, that's a tough question. When we say God's in control of what is occurring in our world, and yet there's a bunch of malevolent actors. Satan is, is instigating and stirring up people's hearts to do evil things and to violate God's law, and yet God's, God's in control. Do you, do you see this is a little more complicated than saying, Oh, bad stuff, it happens, Satan does that. Good stuff, it happens, God does that. And God's not really in control of the bad stuff. Um, that, that's a, that's a cop-out that the text simply will not let us take. So we know Satan is active in our world. Ephesians 2 says that he's the prince of the power of the air who is working actively in the sons of disobedience. Like, Satan is actively working to tempt and draw men away from God. And he's quite effective at that. I think the key here is verse 12. God has to say, behold, all that he has is in thy power. Satan cannot act apart from God. Satan is on a leash. So while we are right to recognize Satan is working in our world and and he is the efficient cause, if you want the, 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 the philosophical term of so much evil that he's working against God, he cannot do anything apart from God permitting it. And it's not God just sort of sitting back and being like, well, I'm going to just let Satan, like, this is very specific. Very specific, God saying all that he has is in the power of your hand. If God had said, no, you can't do this, it would not have happened. So Job is right that even when it is Satan attacking to say, ultimately, God is the one who is holding the leash. So think of Satan as like a vicious dog. He's got a leash. God's the one who is holding the leash. The dog can go no further than God permits. That is really, really comforting to know that Satan is not just a loose dog running around mauling people at will, but he is restrained by God and can only go as far as God permits him to go. So in this current conflict, I, I think it is entirely appropriate to, to, to consider the possibility that Satan is stirring up people like Vladimir Putin and the, the evil of, you know, uh, of uh, who's the guy in North Korea, you know, all these, all these people who are like attacking God's people and bringing violence in our world and death and all and destruction. But don't use that to say God's not really doing this. I remember back when COVID hit, there was a pastor who was like, quit saying God's the one doing this. It's really Satan doing it. Like, yeah, but God's the one who holds. We, we just sang about that. A mighty fortress is our God. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. And it goes on to recognize that God is the one who is ultimately in control, even of Satan's evil. Satan cannot do anything apart from the decree of God. That's comforting. All right, so we're seeing one level, Satan is involved here, but Satan is ultimately restrained and answerable to God. Now, verse 13, we now see this as it works out. Like, Satan does not personally show up to Job's house with his red suit and his pitchfork and be like, ha, I'm going to get you. There are other agents involved. Verse 13, there was a day, so, and there was a day, now this is a word of transition we had. Now, there was a day in verse 6, now we get it repeated in verse 13. When his, that's Job's, sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I 
only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came uh, also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Just boom, 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 all these horrible things. So as Satan carries out his malevolent plan that has been approved and permitted and decreed by God, notice, notice how it happens. We have Sabians, which are human actors, right? These are like marauding bands of, 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 of people. We have Chaldeans. We also have natural causes, the fire of God. There's probably a you know, massive lightning strike, just took out, boom, all the, all the sheep. Uh, and then we got the, got the wind. You say, what caused, you know, who was in control of Job's suffering? You will say, well, it's the Sab- Sabians, it's the Chaldeans, it's the wind. Or you say, well, it's Job. Job says, no, it's ultimately God who's in control of all of those things. So we look at what's happening in our world, the evil in our world. We can say, okay, there's satanic causation. We saw that in verses 6 to 12. But there's also human causation. Real people making real choices that have real harm. Our text, we have the Sabians. We have the Chaldeans. Now, here's a question for you. Was their sin real? The answer is yes. Right? They, the Sabians come and they steal. Thou shalt not steal. They have violated the revealed will of God. And yet, at the same time, they're doing precisely what God has decreed that he would permit them to do. Like that, that's, wow, that, that's some tough tension. God's will, thou shalt not steal. Then here's these guys stealing, and Job's saying, the Lord has taken away. That behind that is God, who is ultimately in control. You feel the, you feel the, the, the tensions, the layers of, of just profound complexity that we have in Scripture. Now, how do those two things work together? You know, the Bible does not actually tell us how the Sabians can be responsible. I have the sense that the Sabians did this all the time. They were greedy people who went and stole stuff from people because they could. They had swords, and they'd go out there and just steal stuff, kill people because they could. The Chaldeans, you know, they eventually become the, uh, the Babylonians, really violent people who not afraid to murder. Uh, by the way, you notice they kill the servants. There's bloodshed that's happening. Thou shalt not kill is a law of God that is being violated. There is real sin, and there is real responsibility. The Sabians and the Chaldeans are responsible before God for the sin that they commit. And yet, that does not mean that, oh, God's not actually in control. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Job is seeing through the Sabians' theft and through the Chaldeans' murder, saying, ultimately, God, they could not do that unless God decreed that they would and that they could. These Marauding murderers will surely face God's wrath and justice for breaking God's law and attacking God's servant. The Bible affirms this truth consistently over and over again. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. So people will make this argument, well, if God is really in control, then people can't really be responsible. And that's the argument that comes up in Romans 9, right? Like, if God does everything that God does, well, who art thou that, that judgest, right? Like, well, how, can, how, how can he find fault? 
The Bible does not answer that question for us. It does not say, how can God be in control and people still make real choices? But the Bible does present both of those truths. And we've got to be okay with saying, you know, it's true because God said it, because the Bible said it, rather than coming to the Bible with, well, I've got a bunch of philosophical presuppositions that have to fit, right? We don't do that. They could also maybe claim, okay, some people will say this, the devil made me do it. You ever hear someone, well, I, I didn't, you know, I'm a really good, but the devil made me do it. Um, reading a really weird book right now called The Devil in the White City. It's a true story. Um, I'm reading it for a book club. It's not the kind of thing I'd ever read my, myself. But it's this, you know, the, the Chicago World's Fair, 1893. It's all of the drama of them building it. And then there's a serial killer running around. And eventually he gets caught and he says, you know, it's not really my fault. I was inspired by the devil from the earliest ages of it. These guys don't have that excuse. The Chaldeans, the Sabians, are really responsible before God, even if Satan is stirring them up. Just as David is held responsible for numbering the people, even though it was Satan who stirred him up. Peter was responsible for denying Christ, even though Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. We, we are responsible before God for what we do. So why did these guys steal Job's stuff and kill Job's servants? Well, we can answer this in a number of different ways, all of which would be true. Because they wanted to steal his stuff and because they were murderous individuals. That would be true, to lay the blame at their feet. It would also be true to say Satan has this evil plot to try to destroy Job's faith and malign God's glory, and Satan's at work to try to make that happen. That would also be true. And it would also be true to say the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. These are not like one of an all of the above option on the test. A letter, you know, not A, B, C, but it's D, all of the above. All of these things are true in different ways. God does not come along and say, I'm going to make you go and do this. That's the human sinful heart that does that. He decrees to permit these things to happen. So what does this have to do with, uh, man, nothing to do with Ukraine. Well, actually it does. It has a lot to do with this. What is true of these marauding hordes in the land of Uz is true of the invading armies in the Donbass. They are carrying out their own will, right? Like Putin's like, hey, I want to take Ukraine. China maybe will say, I want to take Taiwan, like, just greed and power and the evil of, uh, evil of the human heart, uh, and evil of nations. We could also say they're instigated by Satan. Satan loves nothing more than to get human beings fighting and squabbling and killing one another. Right? That's, just, that's what he loves to do. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that's what he loves to do. And we can also recognize that there is not a single soldier who can move apart from the will of God. We see that in the Old Testament. Let me give you just a couple of illustrations here of this. Uh, Daniel chapter 1, um, Daniel chapter 1, we get this back story here before Daniel is hauled off into exile. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now we look at verse 5, and the Lord appointed them a daily, or the king appointed them a daily provision, like there's this, there's this uh, this providence that is going on. Um, just an illustration, another ex- example that you can look up on your own time, Isaiah, f- Isaiah 10, verses 5 to 15. God's like, I'm raising up Assyria. And they're going to be an instrument in my hand, even though they don't know it. Assyria has no concern for God's will. They're pagan. And God's like, yeah, you are going to be an instrument in my hand, doing what I want you to do. You know what that was? Was to invade Jerusalem and invade Judah, and a lot of people were killed. A lot of evil was done, and God was saying, they are carrying out my will, even though they don't recognize it, even though they are violating 
So many things. And then God says, I'm going to turn around and judge them for the evil they have done. Really an amazing passage. Revelation 17, 17 says, the Lord has put it in their hearts to give their kingdom over to the beast. Uh, Put it in their hearts to do his will, like carry out his plan. So the fact that God is in control and the fact that Satan exerts evil influence does not take away man's responsibility before God. Nor, this is very, very important, nor does it make God the author of sin. It does not make God the author of sin. The Bible is crystal clear that God is infinitely holy. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. He is utterly sovereign and perfectly just. We have to keep these truths together. He's in control of all that happens, yet in no way is he responsible or to be blamed for sin. So how does this work? Well, I, 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 I liked this quote from uh, John Piper. He said this, God in his infinite wisdom and goodness and holiness and justice knows how to govern the good and evil choices of all humans without himself sinning and without turning human preferences and choices into morally irrelevant robot-like actions. Here are carefully worded. God is holy and good, yet he's in control. We have also in this text, we see some natural causes. There is you know, a destructive wind. There is fire that comes from heaven. Uh, behind these natural processes is a God who's upholding all things. There's diabolical power behind it. There is divine power behind it. And you say, well, these things just happen. If you go and read the end of the book of Job, one of the key points is God's like, I'm the one who controls the weather. Like, there's no cloud that arises apart from God doing it. That's very clear in Job 38 to 42. So we now come to the end of the text where we started. Job's response to all of this, he has no idea any of the shenanigans that Satan is pulling behind the scenes. By the way, he's never told. Uh, As far as we know, Job went to his grave without ever knowing that his ordeal was a result of a satanic attack. And yet God's like, you need to trust me even if you don't understand what's going on. He worships, and he says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So what does Job do? He confesses God's sovereignty. Think about, this is more than just, a, oh, that's really nice theology. Job's like, oh, God's in control. Oh, that's so nice. That's really sweet. Think about what's going on in Job's life. His servants have been brutally murdered. His possessions have been plundered. His children have been crushed to death under the weight of a collapsing house. Like, that's a pretty horrific way for his family to die. Like, all ten of them in an instant. Like, I cannot fathom the depth of pain and agony and suffering and sorrow that he is going through. At this point, you know, Job, later on, Job's wife will say, just curse God and die. Just, if God's going to bring this into your life, just be done with God. Like, a lot of people respond that way when suffering comes. Like, I'm done, I'm out. Job here, though, acknowledges God gives, God takes away. If God gives life, does it not also follow that God has the sole right to take life? God alone has the sovereignty over life and death. He's the one who brings life into this world, and we celebrate that when a a baby is born. Yay, this came from God. And every death that happens is also under his authority, and that is massively comforting. Here's a question for you. Say, I don't know if I like this idea of God being the one who's sovereign over every death because there's some really horrible deaths that happen. So what would you rather the case be? Would you rather Satan be the one who's in charge of that? Would you rather just fate, chance? I don't think so. We, we, there is comfort in knowing that God in his goodness has a righteous and glorious purpose in all that he ordains, all that he brings about. So Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says, I, I, 
kill and I make alive. Like both, both acts equally in his hand. We know the wages of sin is death. We know that death is ultimately a result of the fall. Every death that happens is not just a random tragedy. Every death that happens is actually a result of the sentence against sin. Puts it into perspective. Soul that sins, it shall die. Everybody who has ever died has died because of the sentence against sin that God and his justice has carried out. Which means this, there is no death that ever happens that is unjust. Right? God's, God is perfectly and totally just in all that he does. Job's confessing here his ten children were a divine gift from God. And he's saying if their birth was from God, so was their death. He said, we can't, I can't separate those two. Yet at the same time, because you're like, man, that sort of sounds like Job is wagging the finger in God's face saying, how dare you do this to me? Verse 22, in all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. The sense of this is he does not ascribe unseemly behavior or immorality to God. He's saying in all this that God is doing, I don't understand it, but it's not unrighteous. God is always righteous, always good, and he must have a good and righteous purpose. The thing that Job does not question is the holiness of God. That, by the way, is the essence of faith. It's saying, I'm going to believe who God is, who he has revealed himself to be, even when the lights go out. I'm going to believe who God says he is, even when all of circumstances are crazy and hectic. So many people will say, if we acknowledge God's sovereign control and ultimate causation over everything that happens, we're blaming God for stuff. That's not how Job saw it. That's not how the, the, the narrator saw it. He did not charge God with sin. You see, God was and God is not sinful. God will never condone sin. So the evil that the Sabians and the Chaldeans did, God condemns that. He does not condone that. Yet at the same time, it could not have happened unless God gave the green light. God does not sin. God cannot sin. The wickedness of Satan in the story is going to be judged in the end. The evil of the Sabians and the Chaldeans will face divine wrath. So somehow in God's infinite wisdom and his pervasive providence... God can determine to permit Satan's scheme. He can decree to permit the Sabian's greed. He can ordain to allow the Chaldean's violence and employ the lightning and the wind to destroy and still be righteous. We're living in a dangerous, dangerous time in history. Um, I'm not a foreign policy expert, but it seems to me that we're living in a time that's probably the most dangerous since the Cuban Missile Crisis. All right, like, I read up the other day, like, what would a nuclear war look like? Like, half a billion people dead in, like, 30 minutes. That, that's, that's a really terrifying thought. Like, I didn't grow up with that. Those of you who grew up in the Cold War, you're like, yeah, we, we grew up with that and, and, you know, fallout shelters and all that. Now, we could be looking at that if things escalate and, you know, maybe things go another direction. Even if that happens, it is within the plan of God. Even if the, the most, you know, unimaginable and by the way, the chances of that are really low because Russia's also like, shoot us, we'll shoot you, like mutually assured destruction. But even if it does happen, God is still in control, not for one second. Like an entire nuclear war could break out and God not for one millisecond has lost control. That's, that's very, very comforting. Our lives are in his hand. Every breath is in his hand. And there's not going to be anything that happens to you at any point in your life it just happens. It's all happening within his will. So let me just give you some conclusions here. We look at what's going on in the, the war. 
what could escalate quickly. Hopefully it de-escalates. That's our prayer that it, just, it ends up being just a little limited type of thing. Um, but we can honestly say God is in control. We don't have to be ashamed of that. We don't have to be like, ah, oh, that, that sounds kind of bad that I'm blaming God for stuff. We can recognize the Lord gives, the Lord takes away without ascribing evil to God. Um, and how that all works, I don't understand it. Let's not try to put things together that God has, has just said, these are true, believe, believe me. So what do we do? We trust God, which is what we should always be doing, right? Trust and obey. There's no other way. We trust his sovereignty. Uh, Amos 3 and verse 6 reminds us that if there's a calamity in the city, did not God bring it about, right? If there's something, anything that happens is because God is ultimately in control. We trust his goodness. I'm not seeing the goodness of God in any of these things because our perspective is so limited. We're only seeing right here, right now. You look, if all we had was Job 1, we'd be like, man, that's horrible. But we also have Job 42. And in the big picture, God is glorified, and what God restores Job, and his end state is better than his beginning state. We get the big picture. And that might not happen in our lives, by the way, and the things that happen in our lives. But we will, be, we will one day see this from the eternal perspective and see that he doeth all things well. So trust God. Secondly, worship God. What does Job do? He mourns, he weeps, he falls down and worships. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not just trite in that moment, right? That, that, that is him genuinely saying, I don't know what God's doing, but I bless him and I, I trust him and I worship him. We can and we must worship God even in the face of evil. We must admire his holiness, which will, be, will shine all the brighter when set against human evil. We must celebrate his righteousness. We must revel in his goodness. We can wonder at his sovereignty. And yeah, there's going to be things that happen in our lives and in our world and whatever may happen you know, next week in the, in the Ukraine. We don't know. God, God, God has not seen fit how to exa- tell us exactly how human responsibility, divine sovereignty are resolved. And you know what? That's okay because it leaves us in a place where we wonder and say, if you wanted us to know, you would have told us we're going to trust you. So if God gives life, blessed be the name of the Lord. If God takes life, blessed be the name of the Lord. If God grants peace, blessed be the name of the Lord. If God sends war, blessed be the name of the Lord. If God sends sickness, blessed be the name of the Lord. If God sends healing, blessed be the name of the Lord. If God allows Armageddon, so to speak, and and by the way, there will be an actual Armageddon, but like in the colloquial use of the term, blessed be the name of the Lord. We can say with the, the hymn writer, whatever my God ordains is right. So yeah, is God in control of what is happening in our world? Absolutely. Can we trust him? Absolutely. Father, may we worship and may we adore you.